Welcome again. If you weren't here during the uh, call to worship and announcements, uh, how dare you? No, I'm kidding. Uh, but my name is Elliot. I'm the pastor here. It's a joy to have you with us this morning. Uh, we are in the middle of a uh, series on the life of Jesus. We're calling this series Being Curious, looking at the life of Jesus with um, kind of the lens of curiosity that what could we learn that we don't know? What could we relearn that we've forgotten? Uh, what could we discover about this Jesus if we came to him curiously instead of with judgment based on what we think we know about him? What could we find and discover about this, the real Jesus? So we've been walking through it, looking at different encounters with Jesus. And what we've seen, or what I hope we've seen uh, throughout the weeks that we've been in the life of Jesus is that um, each week as he encounters these real people, these real living, breathing people with real problems and real heartache and real stories, uh, Jesus almost never says the exact same thing to two people. Um, it doesn't make what he says to one person less true. It's just that he knows exactly. He's like a good friend. He's a master surgeon. He, he knows exactly what someone needs to hear. He knows their story. He knows their pain. He knows their heartache. He knows their fear. He knows their idols. And so he's constantly moving so intentionally, so specifically, so directly, so lovingly with everyone he encounters. And today is no different. We've seen this with Nicodemus and the woman at the well. And we, we've seen this as he's intentionally said things that only that person needed to hear in that moment. And this morning we will see um, Jesus be the master surgeon yet again as he encounters the rich young ruler. So if you will turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. Um, we will be starting in verse 16. Matthew 19 verse 16. If you don't have your Bibles, it'll be up on the screen. Matthew 19, starting in verse 16, says this. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I've kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. Okay, so um, can we get back to the gentle and lowly Jesus, please? Because this is, uh, this is, this is a punch. This is gut punchy. Um, but I want you to know as we enter, as we walk through this, it's, it's the same Jesus that if you've been with us, dealt with the woman at the well, it's the same Jesus that dealt with Nicodemus. It's the same Jesus that dealt with the paralytic lowered through the, through the roof. Um, Jesus is a master surgeon. Jesus is taking his laser scalpel out to get to the heart of this man. 
And he's doing it because he loves this man. That's what we're going to hopefully see, um, how much he loves this man and how much he loves us, that he would do this kind of, he would have this kind of interaction with him and with us. So the story begins like this, verse 16. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Pause, side road for just a minute. That phrase in the New Testament, eternal life, we tend to hear that phrase and think Jesus is talking about the life after death, the eternity of life, the life in heaven. And there's a reality of, yes, he is talking about a, a space-time continuum that one day life will never end. And that is eternal life. And that means eternity of life. That yes, he, this man is curious about life forevermore. However, when the New Testament speaks about eternal life, it's not just talking about this man is not coming to Jesus saying, will you tell me about life after death? Another layer to what's going on is he's not just talking about a length of time, he's talking about a depth of life. I want eternal life now. I want life that is satisfying. I want a depth, like an eternal depth of life right now. Jesus, teacher, good teacher, can I begin the life of full satisfaction? Can I begin a life of wholeness? Can I have eternal life now? And I want that life to continue into eternity, but I'm not just talking about um, infinity years from now. I'm talking about, can I experience rich life? Can I experience life to the full right now? We're told in this Luke version of the story, this, this version or this uh, story appears in Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel, and Luke's gospel. In the Luke version that, um, that we didn't read, we're told that this man is a ruler as well, meaning he had power. I don't know how much, but he had some level of, um, of, uh, of authority, of influence. He wasn't just assistant to the regional manager. He was actually, he had some, he had some power. He had some clout. He, had some, he was on a hierarchy somewhere. So we're told later in this version of the story that this man had great wealth and in verse 22 that he was young. So that's where he gets his name, the rich young ruler. So this man has riches. This man has power. This man has youthfulness. He's got his whole life ahead of him. He has relevance. His body looks good. His body's not deteriorating. He's a rich young ruler. He's an influencer. He's got authority. And in a day when the wealth gap would have been even more drastic, like today we have what's known as the middle class. They didn't have that back then. You were either on the low end of the ladder or the high end. There was no in between. So if this man's got wealth, there is a giant gap between him and society. He's at the top of the food chain. He gets invited to the parties. He's got the social clout, the social networking. He does what he wants to do and no one tells him otherwise. He's got a life, let's just be honest. He's got a life that many of us want. A life where no one's telling me what to do or when I need to show up at work. A life where I don't have to look at my bank account before I make purchasing decisions. A life where I don't feel like I don't have what I need to get what I want. He's got it. And that man asks this question. What good thing must I do to get the life that I want? So we got to pause again. A little side road. When this man asks, what do I have to do? What do I have to perform? What do I have to achieve? What do I have to check off? What ladder do I have to climb to get something from you? Because I think you have something that I don't have. So what do I have to do, achieve, obey, perform in order to get something? And this 
tit for tat relationship, this I do these things, I do A, B, and C, and then you do X, Y, and Z for me, this I perform for you, I pray for you, I sacrifice for you, and then you give me something in return, that's how idols work. That's how idols function. That's what religion is. So this man, when he comes and says, what do I have to do to get? What do I have to perform to receive? When you worship idols, your actions, your prayers, your sacrifices, your achievings, do something that then puts the idol that you're worshiping in your debt. You now are owed something because of what you've done. This is how religion works. This is how idols function. And if, if we understand this man, his idols have served him really well. Now, I don't know if he was a trust fund baby or not, but he's done some things that have achieved some things that put him on a ladder, that put him in a position where he did, 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 and now he's got. So of course he's coming to Jesus the same way. Jesus, you may not know me, Jesus, but I do things and I get stuff. I work really hard and then I get promoted. I save really well and then I go purchase. I, I work my way up and now I make my own decisions. I do things and then I get. So teacher, what do I have to do for you to get from you? It's how my religion works, Jesus. It's how my idols function. And as we will see, this is not how Jesus functions. <laughs> but if we pause even on this man's question, we'll learn it. You can learn a lot about someone based on the first questions they ask in an interaction. And listen to this man's first question. Knowing what we know, uh, the little that we know about him, but it, it's not insignificant. What we know about him, listen to what his first question is. What do I have to do to get something from you means you have something that I don't have, which means I'm lacking something, Jesus. Something isn't working in my life and you have this thing called eternal life, I want it. You have this thing called eternal life, called wholeness, called fulfillment, called satisfaction, called pleasure, you've got it and I don't have it. We find out in this interaction in a little bit, he's a devoted Jewish man. He's keeping all the commandments, which means he's not just crushing his financial game, his power game, and his youth game. He's crushing his spiritual game. He's getting up early to pray. He's at, he's at the synagogue every Sabbath. He's not sinning. He's not murdering people. He's not lying to people. He's honoring his father and mother. He's doing the spiritual practices that we all think if we did them, I would be more spiritually satisfied. He's doing them. He's doing all the right things and he's still wanting something else. That should terrify us. That if you think about what this man has, he's got wealth that we want, he's got power that we want, he's got youthfulness that we want, he's even got the spirituality that we want. He's doing everything right and he's still miserable. He's doing everything he should be doing and he's still discontent. This man is a living embodiment of the book of Ecclesiastes, which is the best slash worst book in the Bible. Because if you read it, do not read it if you're depressed, because you will get more depressed. If you're not depressed at all, you should probably read it. You need to be a little depressed, because that's kind of the goal of Ecclesiastes. Everybody should be a little bit depressed. And because the author of Ecclesiastes is saying to you, hey, go chase it. Go for it. Go chase your wealth, go chase your women, go chase your wine, go chase your meaning and your purpose, go chase your influence, go chase your kingdom, go, go. And it's like grabbing for the wind. Your meaningless life will not make any difference. 
That's what this man's living. I've done it all. I've got it all. I've achieved it all. I've spiritualized it all. I've saved it all. I've worked it all. And Jesus, I still don't have something. I'm still lacking something. So I don't know who it is for you. It may be when you're scrolling Instagram and you have to scurry past somebody because you're like, I can't stay looking at this person's life for one more second because I so want their life. Because the life that they display is the life that I want. It may be some celebrity. It may be some business person. It may be some neighbor of yours. I don't know. But who is it for you that has the life that you want? Who has the family you want? Who has the marriage you want? Who has the career you want? Who has the body that you want? Who has the achievements that you want? Who is it? Please don't answer out loud. That would be awkward. But think about it. It might be someone in this room. It might be someone that you see. It might be someone you fantasize about. Who is it? Who do you think has everything that you wish you wanted? Because this guy has it. That's part of why we know in such a short little story, it's part of why we know so much about him. Like the authors of scripture didn't have to tell us all these details about him unless we needed to know them. We know he's rich, really rich. We know he's young. He looks great. And he's got power. He's got influence. People don't tell him what to do. And he's an incredible person. He obeys all the laws. He does all the right things. He prays the right prayers. He takes spirituality very seriously. So whoever it is that you may be jealous of, this man has it. And yet this man still has this unnerving sense within him that he's lacking something. There's got to be more. There's got to be something out there that I can do to get the life that I want because I currently don't have the life that I want, even though the life that I have is the life that everyone else wants. I've got it and I don't got it. I've got this haunted sense that there's got to be more out there. Charles Taylor, Canadian philosopher, wrote a giant thousand page book called Our Secular Age. I have not read it, but I have read the Reader's Digest version of it that has helped explain it to me. But he describes this reality for the human existential self. It's that in the modern day, we're in a day where transcendence, like life outside what we can see or understand, a transcendent spirituality, an enchantment, like with the magic and the mystery and the, and the, and the mystic, like that we don't understand. In a day, a secular age has removed all need for transcendent and enchantment reality. So we don't think we need a higher power. We don't think we need a higher being. We don't think we need something greater than ourselves to get the life that we want. We have removed the transcendent from our language. Thank you, enlightenment, okay? Charles Taylor says that even if we've removed transcendent enchantment reality from our reality, and we don't talk about it because we don't talk about what we can't understand and predict. So here's what Charles Taylor says. Because of that, we then turn all of our desire and longing into what he calls the imminent frame, the buffered self. I will turn all of my longing for transcendent enchanting reality, but I don't believe in that. That doesn't make sense. I don't understand it. I can't prove it. So I will turn all of my desire into myself and into the imminent moment, into the now, YOLO. That's where that comes from. There is no life after this life. So get all of your life out now. And so I will, I will make all of my meaning and purpose and joy and fulfillment. I will squeeze it out of my life right now. When that happens, 
This is what Charles Taylor says. When we do that, when we focus all of our heart's desire, like this rich young ruler, on getting eternal life out of the things we do accomplish, accrue, and achieve right now, we experience a cross pressure. A cross pressure like on the soul that's like, I want more than just my life. I want there to be a reality bigger than just my life. I want to be a part of something more grand and more epic than all that my life can do or achieve, but I don't know where to get it, and so I'll just get it now. And it creates this cross pressure of being haunted. You're haunted by the reality that there's got to be something more. And if you want to deal with reality, you have to deal with being haunted. Even though nothing in my world is telling me there is more than this life, I still am dealing with this cross-pressured haunting of knowing there's got to be more than just my little life can squeeze out. That's what this rich young ruler is experiencing. And we know the feeling too. And so in that place of that cross-pressured haunting, there's got to be more, there's got to be more, there's got to be more. Where can I get? He asks this question, what must I do to get the thing that I'm currently lacking? What must I perform in order to get what I don't have? And Jesus answers this question, answers it this way. Keep the commandments. As we, as we navigate through this, please know that Jesus is not a kindergarten teacher, okay? Jesus is not like um, asking just the elementary question, looking for the elementary answer. He's a master surgeon. He's a master teacher. He's headed somewhere, so when he asks that question, it's a softball, but he knows that this guy is going to swing on it. He knows that this guy is going to take a crack at it. So keep the commandments. And then this guy shows the game that he's playing by his answer because he's a God-fearing Jew. And when Jesus says, keep the commandments, and this guy says, which commandments? Then we know this guy's playing a game because, hey, dude, there's 10 of them that in your Decalogue, like you should know what commandments he's talking about. There's some famous commandments known as the 10 commandments that kind of everybody talks about. And so when Jesus says, keep the commandments, you don't need to be asking which ones, but I'll play along with you. So we keep going. Which commandments should I keep Jesus? And so Jesus then answers, he lists basically the second half of the 10 commandments and he kind of sums them all up. He's referring to the 10 commandments in his answer. He says, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. And this is where the rich young ruler plays his cards. His first question exposed him, but now he's going to lay something on the table that he's not going to be able to get out of, which is exactly where Jesus is taking him. So keep the Ten Commandments. That's what Jesus says. You want eternal life? Okay, keep the Ten Commandments and do it perfectly. And this is the man's response. All these I have kept. In the Mark and Luke versions, he says, all these I have kept from my youth. Jesus, I've been perfect since I was a fetus. Like I'm a firstborn, I'm an Enneagram one, I don't mess up. Like I do the right things because there is a right way to do them and guess who does them better than anybody? Me. And so then he says, all these I've kept, I've been perfect since my youth, Jesus. Okay, you thought you, thought you were gonna, gonna get me on the 10 commandments that I'm not keeping and you could expose me. Well, I got you, Jesus. I've never broken one of the 10 commandments. I've never murdered anybody. I've never stolen from anybody. I've never lied to anybody. I always honor my father and mother. I always keep the Sabbath. I only worship the Lord. I am a perfect person, Jesus. And then he shows his cards by saying this, the follow-up question, what do I still lack? 
I'm doing it all, Jesus. I'm obeying the law. I'm keeping the law. I'm, I'm loving my neighbor. I'm loving God. I'm not murdering. I'm not lying. I'm not, I'm not jealous of people. I'm not coveting people. They're all jealous of me. But I'm still lacking something. And he's running up to Jesus with all of his money, with all of his power, with all of his youth, with all of his morality, with all of his performance, with all of his spirituality. And he's saying, look at the places where I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. You thought you were gonna have an aha, gotcha. Didn't get me, Jesus, because look, I've kept all 10 and I do them perfectly. What am I still lacking? Why is this system not working? And when this man lays his resume on the table, what he nor we tend to understand is that the resumes we lay on the table, look at what I'm doing. Look at what I've done. Look at how I perform. Look at how I achieve. Look at how I crush the system. The resumes that we lay on the table are usually the places that we love to hide behind. The places that we hold up for others to see, the things we want others to know about us, the things we lead with, the things that we make a list of are typically the places where we feel worth something, typically the places where we feel secure in something, and they're the places that make us feel wanted in this life. The places on our resume, the places that we lay out, for this man, it's money, power, youth, and morality kind of covered all the bases. You may have one that's not in that list, but I'd love to know, but he covers them all. Here's my resume. All those places are all the places we look to to make us feel like we won't lack anything. Typically the places that we hide behind. It would be the equivalent, if you know your biblical themes, of running up to Jesus and saying, Jesus, look at my fig leaves. Aren't they hiding me well? Aren't they keeping everyone at a distance well? Aren't they proving that I am something well? Look at my fig leaves, Jesus. Look at how well I'm hiding behind them. And this is where Jesus, the master surgeon, goes after the heart. Everything's on the table now. I'm doing it all perfectly. Here's my resumes. I have the money. I have the power. I have the youth. I have the morality. I have the spirituality. And I'm still lacking. And Jesus has to go after his heart And he says to this man, you may be obeying the law in your own mind. You may be judge and jury of your own life and you may think you're doing all the right things. You may have accomplished all the things you wanted to in your life, but I have to tell you, friend, you are a fraud. I have to tell you, rich young ruler, you're not who you think you are. But I couldn't say that until you had told me who you think you are. And so I've got to get it out. I had to get you to get it out on the table so we could look at it together and say, actually, you're kind of full of it. You don't love the things of God. Your loves are out of order, young man. And in order for Jesus to expose this man that way, he has to show this man that there are idols in his life that have taken the seat in his heart that it belongs exclusively to the Lord. You think you love me and the world perfectly. You think you're doing it all right. You think you've got every box checked and every base covered. And I love you enough to tell you, you don't. You can do everything else in your life with perfection, young man. And you may have had great success. You can even be a great person. But I'm here to tell you, if you don't love the Lord as the primary position in your heart, you will be miserable. 
Sir, you don't have money. Money has you. That's what he has to get to in this young guy. So Jesus cloaks his scalpel to go after the heart, to get this man to this place with this piercing command. Jesus, I've done everything perfectly since I was a boy. I've got it all together. I've never messed up once. I've kept all these. And then Jesus says, oh, that's great. Okay, okay. I'm sorry, I didn't know who I was speaking to, apparently. Just one more thing. One, one last thing before you go. Go sell all you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me. No, Jesus. Nope. No thanks. Won't do it. I will not do what you're asking me to do. And Jesus knows that the way he has to get to this man's heart is to go after the unstated most important thing in his life. I've got to go after the thing that has become your functional savior. I have to go after the thing that, it, that you are holding on to tighter than anything else. I've got to go after the places in your life where you are death gripping something. And we know how much this man has a death grip on his money by his response. It says he went away sad because he had great wealth. I mean, this, this, is, this is startling. It, it should startle some of us. That this man hears the command of Jesus, sell everything you have, give it away to the poor and come and follow me. And this man says no to Jesus. This man's crushed. He walks away sad. And again, if we pause for a moment and zoom out from a biblical perspective, this is not popular to believe or say, but the first purpose of the law that God gives us is to do this very thing to us. The law of God crushes this man. I know that's not the way we like to think about the law of God, but the Bible is very clear about it. The first purpose of the law is to get this man to realize he can't keep it. That if you think you are obeying the law of God perfectly, you don't understand the law of God. And that's what he has to get this man to see and understand. Not only is he not willing to do it, he's unable to do it. He will not set down his love of money. And so Jesus has to give him the true weight of the law of God. He has to go to the place in this man's heart where he knows this man will be exposed for the fraud that he is. You think you love God and you love people perfectly. You think you love your neighbor completely selflessly. selflessly. You think you're doing all the right things and you have been since you were a boy. No, you're not. You don't love God and neighbor more than anything. And I need you to see that. You have to see that you, your view of you is not the right view of you. This is what the law of God, properly understood, does to all of us at first. When we really hear the law of God, when we really understand what the law of God requires, when we really understand what the law of God truly calls us to, it crushes us too. Romans chapter 5 didn't make it up. Paul said it. Romans chapter five says that the law of God was given, listen to this, the law of God was given to increase your trespasses. The law of God was given so that when you read it, your list of sinning would increase. 
so that as you read it, you would go, nope, not keeping that one, haven't done that one, can't keep that one, tried and failed at that one. The law of God was given to increase your trespasses. Romans chapter three says that the law of God, when read and understood, was given to shut every mouth, like in a courtroom, in the defense system, that you would have nothing to say when the law of God was read perfectly and you would go, I understand it, and now my mouth is closed. In other words, you have no justification for who you are and what you've done. You have no defenses left. The law is meant to remove your defenses. In front of the law of God, no one could defend or justify their own righteousness. And if the law does that to someone, the Bible would say it is accomplishing its first purpose. That's what this question does to this man. This man can no longer live in the fantasy that he really does love God and neighbor more than anything else. He doesn't. His mouth is shut. Jesus goes right for the idol jugular. Like, I I have to show you this. I have to show you that your view of you is not the right view of you. You think you're perfect. You think you're crushing everything. You're not. Jesus knows that if this man is going to experience a life of no lack, if this man is going to start experiencing eternal life right now, then he has to let go of the thing that he has determined would give him eternal life now. If you want to experience a life of no lack, Jesus is saying, you have to let go of the thing that you thought would give you a life of no lack. If you want to experience the fullness of the kingdom of God, all you need is nothing. All you need is need. And it's the hardest thing to acquire. (laughs) It's the thing we refuse to admit that we have. So I don't know what your area is. I don't know what, what area of life you think if you had more of it, if you could secure it, if you could do better at it, you would experience a life of no lack. But I know this, Jesus is not an idol and he doesn't play tit for tat games. And he doesn't say, well, if you would just do and perform and achieve, then I would give you a life of no lack. Jesus is a jealous lover that will not share you with other false lovers. Jesus will not share your allegiance. Jesus will not entrust your heart to love other lovers. He will not let us run to pseudo saviors, which is what our idols always promise us. That's, what, that's the promises that idols always make. I will love you and keep you and I will never leave you and I will save you. Our idols always promise that. They always promise us a life of no lack. If you had more of this thing, you would not lack anything. That's how idol talk started in the garden. It's what the serpent tells Eve. If you will eat this fruit, what does she promise her? You'll be like God. You won't have any lack. If you'll obey this, my command, if you'll chase after this thing, then you will be like God and you will lack nothing. You will be like God. And so for this man, it was money. He believed money would give him a life of no lack. Now yours may not be money, but it may be money. <laughs> like if, if we say out loud, or if I say out loud, hey, Jesus was talking to this guy about money. He may not be talking to you about money and you go, okay, good. Okay, I thought he was talking about money. He's probably talking to you about money. <laughs> like if you have relief 
from, well, this man's was money, yours could be beauty. If you go, good, because then let me try to like drum it up and pretend like mine really isn't money so that Jesus won't ask me to sell everything and give it away. Maybe I can fool Jesus into thinking the thing in my heart that, believe, that I believe will give me a life of no lack. Let me just tell him it's not money so he'll leave me alone. It's probably money. And we were talking in our small group this week, it could be any number of things, truly, for us. If you have a job in this city, it's probably money. Like you're in the wealthiest 2% of the world. Like you, you, there are people who, who, would, who would kill to have the money that you have. And we love to think, well, I'm poor by comparison here, but we just need to compare to other places to realize maybe money has you and you don't have money. We don't want to soften what Jesus is doing here, not because we have to be punched, but because we need to be saved. And I know that for me, we talked about this in our small group this week, money is the number one way. It's the easiest way. It's not the only way. It's the easiest way for me to believe if I had more of it, I would have no lack. Money makes me feel limitless. I can do what I want to do. Money makes me feel safe. Money makes me feel like if anything threatens me, I could defend myself. If a surprise happened, I could buy my way out of it. If a sickness happened, I could go to the doctor I needed. Like money makes me think I will be like God and I won't need anything else. So what is it for you? What is the place in your life that is promising you that if you had it, if you had more of it, you wouldn't lack anything? And I know it may be hard to imagine, but what is the one place in your life, and this, this is scary to admit out loud, but it, 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 it's, what, it's the question of the passage. What is the place in your life that if Jesus came to you and said, I'm asking you to walk away from that and follow me and leave it and follow me, that you would say, no, I won't give that up. And I don't know what it is. I was talking to a high schooler after the nine o'clock service who just made a 35 on his ACT. I hate him. But he's made a 35 on his ACT. And he said, um, I think that like my achieving in school is like probably where I believe that I won't have any lack. And so he said, so I'm going to sell my ACT and give it to the poor. Um, <laughs> which is not the right, I mean, that's not, he, he didn't get it. Um, but it could be anything. What are you looking to to make you feel like if I had it, I wouldn't lack anything? Is it your power? Is it your influence? Your money? Your body? Your family? Your control? Your ability to think things through and plan them out? Where are you looking to to make you feel like if you had it or had more of it, you would not lack anything. And it needs to be said, as we, as we let the, the, the spirit of Jesus ask us that question, you've got to know this. When Jesus asks this question, he is loving this man. The book of Mark says that Jesus, right before he asks the question, right before he says, you need to sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. Right before he says that, this is how Mark describes what Jesus is doing before he says that sentence. It says, Jesus looking at him, like eye to eye contact, big crowd around, I'm staring at you, I'm in the most intimate eye to eye moment that two people can have. I'm looking at you, Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Some scholars think that the rich young ruler was Mark. 
was the person who wrote the Gospel of Mark, because Mark's the only one that mentioned that he loved him. And there's this, there's, you know, the theory that potentially only Mark knew through the eyes of Jesus, this man's loving me right now. I can see it in his eyes, he loves me. Doesn't say, but it is not mistake or it is not missed in the book of Mark that this question is asked from a place of Jesus, not simply to expose him and leave him there. This question is asked from Jesus to love this man and liberate him, not imprison him. It was a question asked, it was a command given in order to save him, save him from himself and save him from the functional savior in his life. And most of our idols, most of the things that we look to to save us, most of the things we look to to give us a life of eternal life of no lack, most of those things that we end up loving and trusting more than Jesus are all really good things. Most of them. Sometimes they can become very dark things, but most of the time it's our families. Most of the time it's money. Most of the time it's experiences. Most of the time it's, it's taking care of ourselves. Like most of the time we look to these endeavors, these pursuits, these ideas, these realities to make us feel like we don't lack anything. And it's not that those pursuits are bad things. It's that those pursuits can so subtly and sinisterly become what sits on the throne of our heart that now I'm not just pursuing money. Now I have to have more money because it will save me. Now I don't just need a good, healthy, strong, vibrant family. Now I have to have it because it's what will save me. I don't just need a promotion at work or a, or a turn for my career to land me on some new income level or new power level. I have to have it because it will love me and save me. And Jesus loves us enough when we have disordered affections in our heart. Jesus loves us enough to save us from our idols. He loves us enough to show us the places where we do this. He loves us enough to show us where we feel like we could run to and never have to need anything again. Jesus is loving him. And in our passage, uh, what's hidden in plain sight, certainly hidden on the first read-through, is proof of how much Jesus loves this man and loves you. I know we can hear the words of Jesus and the scalpel that begins to cut and think, is he trustworthy? Does he actually love me? Is he worth not getting up from the operating table on? But whenever Jesus gets out his scalpel, it is always, always, always to save us and liberate us, and the proof is in the passage. When Jesus comes to this man and he gives him and he has this little you know, encounter of disordered affections. You're loving and trusting money more than you're trusting me. Jesus says something. He says, and it, 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 we maybe miss it when we first read it. He says, if you want to be perfect, you want to achieve perfection, you want to achieve absolute perfect righteousness, you want to be a perfect being, rich young ruler, go sell all your possessions and give them to the poor. So at like the sentence grammar level, if we were breaking down the sentence, Jesus is equating perfection with giving everything away for the sake of those that need it. Jesus is equating being perfect with selling all that you've got, using your resources and leveraging them for someone who doesn't have. Perfection is giving everything away for someone in need. And yes, that question was meant to expose this man, but something deeper is also going on. But if you back up in the passage, before he describes what perfection is, this man comes to him and says, good teacher, I have a question for you. Good teacher. And Jesus says, do you know who you're calling good? 
It's actually this really subtle way where Jesus is acknowledging his own deity because he says to him, only God is good. Do you know you're talking to God right now? But he says to him, hey, only God is good. Only God is the supreme being. Only God is supreme perfection. That's how he starts this interaction. So tying all of it together, here's what Jesus is doing in the subtlest of ways in this interaction. He's saying, hey, you want to know what good is? You want to know what perfection is? You want to know what God's perfection, God's good, beautiful perfection looks like? You want to know what it is? It's standing right in front of you. Do you know, rich young ruler, that the infinite one, the infinite perfect one, is the one that has sold everything to give it away for someone in need? Do you know that the one who's talking to you is also a rich young ruler? Do you know I'm a perfect rich young ruler? Do you know that if perfection looks like selling off your resources so that you could go and give to someone who needed it, I'm telling you, that's me, it me. I'm telling you that if you want to know what beautiful perfection looks like, it looks like who's talking to you. That yes, the command to be perfect was meant to expose your affections and your trust in your idols. But do you also know that the one who gave you the command is the one who did sell everything he had, the one who did lose everything so that he could give you what you don't have? Second Corinthians, Paul says it this way, that Jesus, though he was rich, became poor for your sake, that he might make you rich. That Jesus is the perfect rich young ruler who sold all that he had and came after the object of his highest affection, his bride, the church. Jesus sold his treasure, he gave it all away in order to reclaim and redeem the treasure that he loved even more. Jesus wasn't worshiping an idol when he did it. Jesus was doing it because it's what he wanted to do out of his own compulsion, out of his own affection. That Jesus doesn't have disordered loves, and in Jesus' rightly ordered loves, he decided what perfection in love looked like is that I would sell everything I have to come and give it to the ones that have not So anytime that Jesus gets out his scalpel, anytime that Jesus wants to talk to you by his spirit and say to you, hey, there's something that you're looking to to trust trust in that would give you a life of no lack. There's something that has you more than you have it. There's something you're chasing. There's something you're pursuing. There's a view of yourself that you like to have. Anytime that Jesus gets out that scalpel, he's doing it from the place that has already given up everything he had. He's doing it from the place that has already sold everything for the ones that he loved. He's looking at you and loving you to lead you to a place of no lack. And all you need is nothing in order to receive it. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, we could name a lot of places in our life that we look to to make us feel like we will lack nothing. Our money, our image, our reputation, our control, our promotion, our glory, our fame, our family. And these good things that we trust more than we trust you, would you love us enough to do the surgery on us that would cause us to love and trust you more? That we have to get to a place of lack before we will experience no lack in you. Would you peel our fingers off of the places where we have death grips? 
Lead us in repentance to a place of need and nothing that we might receive the riches that you have for us because of what you've sold to come and make us rich. We love you, Jesus, in your name, amen.